Please take your Bibles, if you would, and find the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, as uh, we continue our trek uh, through looking at the life of David and uh, learning how we can bring on the giants, and we know that he's still king, defeats all giants. But we're, we're glad you're here today on this uh, Labor Day weekend. I know already you're glad that you have come. This is also the first day of our new church year, and so you have started off well. Mark it down. And... Uh, uh, continue to do so, and it may not feel like New Year to you all, but uh, it is a new year for our church here. We know we have many traveling this weekend, but we feel like we have just as many traveling our way. So uh, we welcome you, and we're glad that you're here, some of you that have traveled to come in uh, to be here as well. And uh, we're in Second Samuel chapter 5, going to be reading verses uh, 1 through 12. And uh, would you stand and honor the reading of God's Word today? Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron and before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron... He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you all, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said, On that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word, and you may be seated. It is the title of the sermon, and so, for illustration purposes only, I have brought with us a magic eight ball. And uh, come to find out, just doesn't take long to Google and find out, since 1944, the magic eight ball has been around. It was... First called, make sure I got this right, Psycho Slate, the pocket fortune teller. But somewhere before the 1950s, the Brunswick Billiards came into the picture and they changed the name to the Magic 8 Ball. And they still sell a million of these a year. Well, a million and one this year. And uh, so I thought while we had it, I thought we might ask it some uh, important questions, understand. And one of those being, how about this one? Um, Will the preacher preach too long today that you'll be late for Sunday school? Let's find out what that says. Outlook, not so good. You take that for whatever it means. Now, how about this one? Uh, we've, been, uh, we've been working on the hallways and projects in here for uh, pretty much the whole summer, hoping to be through by Labor Day, not quite through. Thankful for all those who took part. Uh, Wilbur Brown got us started, our building the grounds chair at that time, and we appreciate it. Look at the, if you hadn't been on this side, look how good it looks over here. Then you can see the before and after picture from one side to the other. But will we ever be through with the project? How about that one? 
It says, well, you may rely on it. So that's good news. It's going to happen. Well, how about this? Certainly much more important. Is Auburn going to win the Iron Bowl? I'm just not going to say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, now, before you go and tell the preacher said, all you got to do is pray and ask the magic eight ball. It is just illustrative purposes, and it is a toy only, we understand. Uh, but I've yet to met anybody that told me that God spoke to them through the magic eight ball. I imagine there might be somebody that might say this very thing. But if you're not going to God or you're not going to His Word for answers, you might as well just go to the magic eight ball because He is the only one who provides the answers. We, we've talked about many giants in our lives over these past three weeks, if, that Jesus, our King, can help us to overcome. Last week we talked about overcoming grief. We talked about things such as even physical giants, financial relationships, and even addictions and fears and anger. And we're not done yet. Well, today we're going to talk about how to combat the giant of uncertainty. The giant of uncertainty. Together we're going to be able to search the Scriptures and this important season in David's life, and he makes this transition to become king over all of Israel. So we're going to ask how you can know that you're heading in the direction that the Lord wants you to be able to go into the center of God's will, making the Lord the decisions that you are making, and the Lord is pleased with those directions. Whether you're a mom or a dad or a student or your brother or a sister or you're married or single or single again or whether you have a full house or an empty nest, uncertainty can lead to worry and to anxiety and to doubt. Well, today I believe that God wants you to know with some confidence that you are heading in the direction that the Lord would have you to go or to be able to see the changes that you need to make in order to be where God wants you to be. Some of you probably knew before you came in here today that you knew that there were some changes that need to be made. Well, I'm not the nudger uh, necessarily, but I do believe the Holy Spirit's going to be at work today in order to be able to give confidence that yes, we're heading in the right direction or in order to be able to see the changes that we need to make in order to be in line with God and, and His will. And uh, a young man was walking, was uh, wanting to marry uh, his girlfriend. And so he, before he asked, before he proposed, he went to her dad to ask permission or to get the blessing. And during that conversation, as you might, uh, the dad began to ask questions. And he asked him, well, what are you going to do to make a living? And the young man said, well, I don't know, but I know God will provide. He said, well, where are you going to live? He said, well, I'm not sure but necessarily, but I know that God will provide. And then he asked him, he said, well, what, do you, what are your plans for the future? And he said, well, I'm just taking care of day today, but I know that God will provide for the future. Well, later in the conversation that that dad had with his wife, uh, he said, oh, it's worse. Uh, it's worse than I thought. No job, no place to live, no plans for the future, and even worse, he must think I'm God. <laughs> God is the provider. And David becomes king at the age of 30. We just read it a moment ago. He's king for 40 years. The first seven and a half years, he is king over Judah. And then uh, for 33 years, he's the king over all of Israel. These verses that we read, they serve kind of as a summary of David's uh, kingdom. And David, when he becomes king, and so there's some things that are mentioned here, haven't happened yet, but it's just kind of an overview of what's going to take place. And uh, consider all the roles that David had played before he became king. We know that he was the shepherd boy. We know he took care of his daddy's sheep. We know that he became anointed as a young 
lad almost probably that uh, by the prophet Samuel. We recognize that uh, he was a musician for the king, best harp player in all of Judah. They were looking for somebody to come and play music for the king when he was tormented by the evil spirit. And so they had a talent search and David won. Israel's got talent and he became uh, the player, the music player. Instead of going to play the palace in Las Vegas, he went to Saul's palace and was there nightly. Thus, then he defeats Goliath. He becomes a great military leader for Saul. He became best friend to the king's son, Jonathan. He married the king's daughter. King Saul became jealous of him. Then he was in exile from the king for ten years. Now do the math when you count down all of the other stuff. And after he'd been in exile for ten years, all the other stuff like the anointing and the defeating of Goliath happened when he was a teenager. I notice something as I, as I get older. How you think of time and days and even years changes with every decade. David was 20 when he was on the run from Saul, 30 when he became king of Judah, 37 when he became king of over all of Israel. When you're 20, 10 years is a particularly long time. His confidence in what God had told him about being king may have wavered from time to time. There were times that he would get off the path, uh, but ultimately he would come back to be in God's will and to follow him and put his faith in God's promises. To see David at times move away from God's plan and at times reflect more of a roller coaster spiritual life than a rock solid straight path to being king of Israel does not give excuse for less than a stellar spiritual walk for you and me. The Apostle Paul tells us these things are written in the Old Testament, particularly about the Israelites, of which David was one, so that we might avoid their pitfalls. Nevertheless, God's will is fulfilled and David becomes king, much having to do with the sovereignty of God and God's grace. So first, if you want to be able to have more confidence that you're heading in the direction or see the changes that you need to make, be willing to wait on God for directions and for answers. Be willing to wait on God for directions and for answers. This may be the greatest obstacle to many disciples who live in America or a culture like ours because we want to work things out for ourselves. We want to be able to say or see the problem and see what it is that we must do in order to fix the problem. I want to be Mr. Fix-It. But part of fixing the problem of overcoming uncertainty is learning to wait on God. Now here's what we can commend David for particularly, and there are many things, but he never tried to take over the kingdom. He never fought against Saul or against his army. He had opportunity on more than one occasion to take the king's life and end all of this exile and all of the hiding. He could have come into the kingdom much sooner as the king of Israel on his own. But he waited on God, had too much respect for the anointed office of the king of God's people. No doubt God was using this time to strengthen him and prepare him for what lie ahead as the king of Israel. No doubt if you're waiting on God to answer a prayer or going through a particular season of life and you're wondering what God is up to and it seems like a long time, no doubt God is using that to prepare your heart or to make you more and more like Jesus. It's kind of a wax on, wax off, karate kid kind of thing. I don't know if that illustration still works, but listen, it is, uh, you may not even know or be aware of how God is at work in your life, but you can be sure that God is always at work, even during the waiting times. The time waiting on God is not wasted. How many battles did David have to fight between 1 Samuel 16, when he defeated Goliath, and now the passage we're reading in 2 Samuel chapter 5? Countless battles that he faced. 
Sometimes David was very confident. Sometimes he seemed a little confused. And yes, he made mistakes. But he always came back and for the most part was an example of faithfulness. Well, let me ask you, has God promised you a victory if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Victory for today as well as victory in the end? In fact, he said that you are a royal priesthood. We will reign with Him on high. All foes will be vanquished. We recognize that your sins have been forgiven. His name will be exalted and you'll spend eternity with Him in heaven if you're a child of the King of kings and the follower of Jesus. Yet we know we will face many earthly battles between now and then. Some of these will be in relationships. Some of these may be in physical illness. Some may be financial. And many will be spiritual. If we're not learning to wait on God, what a miserable pathway to follow. But what does the scripture tell us? That those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, you know this passage, many of you do, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The two verses before that, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 29 says this, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. If you want to overcome uncertainty in your life, tell God that you'll wait on Him. Tell God that you will trust Him and His way and know that His timing is impeccable, even when we may not understand. 2 Samuel chapter 5 should be a highlighted chapter. It's significant. It is victory after all the battles. It's also a chapter that should cause us to know that God fulfills His promises. The uniting of Israel under David's kingdom didn't come without God being at work and David seeking his leadership. After King Saul, Jonathan, and other sons of Saul die in battle, David grieved and he mourned for Saul. That was our emphasis for last Sunday. But notice what David did. Before he did anything or before he decided Saul is dead, I'll be ready to move into the palace. 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. You can look it up. I think we've also got it on the screen for you. It says, After this David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Notice the significance of this particular prayer of David. He was not presumptuous after Saul had died. Perhaps he could have thought it's now time to move into the palace. But David asked and God told him and God told him specifically. And it seems rather straightforward. But remember that David's been looking for direction for 10 years. And while David did get much direction, get indications of where he needed to be and what he needed to do during those 10 years and while he was running from King Saul, only now is David given the particular answer of when and where. The time and now, the places, the city of Hebron. Interestingly enough, Hebron is the highest elevated city in Judah. It's the same area that was given to Caleb, one of the only two original Israelites who entered into the promised land. Caleb, who said, give me this mountain. This is a couple of years uh, just after David had been hiding out in and around the Dead Sea, the lowest point. And now for a time, he's going to be ruling from the highest point in Judah. Uh, at first, he would be anointed king of only one tribe, though it was a large and influential tribe, the tribe of Judah. I may have said previously that all of Saul's sons died in that last battle with King Saul, with the Philistines. Well, 
all the sons who were in the battle died. But there was one son of King Saul who was left who did not go into battle. Perhaps he did not go into battle for a time such as this so that there would be a survivor. Ishbosheth was his name. And with the help of Abner uh, and uh, Saul's general, Ishbosheth was made king of all the other tribes, including Benjamin, the tribe of Saul. He was the king of Israel, what was known as Israel at that particular time, mostly of the northern tribes for two years. And as you might suspect, civil war broke out. And even though David had only the tribe of Judah for those first few years, David and the tribe of Judah became stronger and stronger, and all the other tribes became weaker. This would be a precursor to the breakup of the nation of Israel under David's grandson, when the northern tribes would be known as Israel and the south would be known as Judah. All were God's people. They'd often go to battle against one another. It's a reminder when God's people are at odds or when they are not unified, they will often spend more time battling with one another than they will fulfilling that for which God has called them to do. David's move to Hebron. It'd be the first move to unifying God's people to fulfill God's purpose. And even though there's disunity and turmoil in the nation, David was able to move forward with confidence because he acquired of the Lord. So again, how can we be sure that we're moving forward with confidence? Well, be assured that God is ready to answer you. Be assured that God is ready to answer you. It seems so simple, but it's often overlooked. You want to overcome uncertainty? Ask God for direction. We'll continue to talk about how God will answer today, but more often we simply need to pay attention to what God wants to tell us. Well, how did God answer David? I mean, it says that God answered David, and we don't know for sure every time, but we can get a clue of how the Lord actually spoke to David from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Previously, King Saul, in a fit of rage, he had all the, almost all the priests killed who lived in a priestly city by the name of Nob because they had befriended David or he thought that they'd helped David escape, offered food and comfort to the enemy, meaning David. And all the priests were killed. One escaped. One priest by the name of Abiathar. Abiathar fled to where David was hiding, stayed with him from that point on. And after David and his men, they come back from one occasion to where they'd almost gone to war with the Philistines. And when they come back, they find that their city has been burned and plundered and all the women folk and children kidnapped. And then all the men, all of his men are ready to turn on David. David is at one of his lowest points. He's fallen away from calling on God. Well, he called to himself Abiathar the priest. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, it says this. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now the ephod, it is a part of a priestly garment that's worn by the first priest, uh, Aaron. It was a vest that came with it. They'd wear, the, they'd wear it with white linen with uh, threads of blue, purple, scarlet, and gold. And there was a breastplate that they wore over it with 12 precious stones that, for the 12 tribes of Israel. And it had two stones with it called the Urim and the Thummim. We got a picture, I think, maybe of that breastplate or what it may have looked like. We don't know for sure what it looks like. 
But they had these two stones, one called the Urim, uh, which means fire or light, and another was called the Thummim, which means truth or perfection. And God would reveal His will to the priest through these stones. Now, how exactly that was done, that's kind of been lost through the ages. We don't know exactly how it was done. Some believe that they might have uh, glowed at certain, to give answers and Others believe that you might have thrown these stones and maybe they represent different letters by how they landed. Probably what it was that there was symbols or colors on the stone and when they were thrown, that if they matched it meant one thing, if they did not match it meant something else. Wouldn't it be nice today to carry around our own priest? And anytime you need an answer from God, say, let's just get the Urim and Thummim out. Let's just be able to answer that. I'll do you one better. In Christ, you are your own priest. And any time you need an answer from God, He is ready there to answer you. That we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence knowing that the Lord is ready to act to answer us at any time. From 1 Samuel 30 until we get to 2 Samuel, David seems to make good use of calling on God for answers. The Urim and the Thummim may have been one way in which God revealed Himself. We know that the Lord revealed Himself through prophets to David, sometimes through other people, and sometimes it seems that he talks directly to David. But for many chapters before 1 Samuel 30, he did not call on God or had a season in which looking to God for answers was not part of David's plan. Why do you suppose that would be? Probably for some of the same reasons that we do not call on God at times in our life. We sometimes figure incorrectly, we've got this handled on our own, or we become complacent and we forget that we must rely on Him for our daily provisions and for all the source of our strength for living each day. Or we've decided maybe to go our own way. We know that we're not going to go to God for answers because if we do, we fear God might tell us something that we really don't want to hear. It's not what our sinful nature desires to do. But the reality is, not coming to God in prayer and growing in your prayer life will keep the giant of uncertainty in your life. We know that the Urim and the Thummim was often used in the Old Testament from the time of Aaron in the wilderness until the time of Jesus, more often called the casting of lots, which was practiced sometimes we recognize in the Gospels. Well, we know that they cast lots for Jesus' robe. The Romans did. They probably did not use the Jewish Urim and the Thummim. The most famous time, I guess, of Christians casting lots was in Acts chapter 1 when they were determining who to replace Judas as one of the twelve. But in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, the time of Pentecost, all believers received the Holy Spirit. And ever since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of Jesus, rushes into every believer. And at that moment they receive Christ as Lord. They know they have the Spirit of Jesus living in us, living in each one. The casting of lots or the use of the Urim and the Thummim was never mentioned again after Acts chapter 2 as a common use of the New Testament church. And while it does not say explicitly, we know there is no need for the casting of lots due to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. As comforter and counselor, Holy Spirit's reason to cast uncertainty aside and trust that He will provide the answer and the guidance. Trust when there are open doors and that there are closed doors that the Lord is at work. And have a peace that even though you may not know exactly what our next step is, as we submit to the Holy Spirit and look for His ways and not ours, He will not allow our feet to falter or to move in the wrong direction. Now understand, this is an 
with an emphasis with our heart being inclined to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. In the Old Testament, the Earl of Methuen was better than a magic eight ball, perhaps, because this is often how God revealed His will in the Old Testament. But even better, as a New Testament believer, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a child of the King. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a child of the King. In the story of David becoming king of all Israel, there's another indicator of certainty that David had and certainty you and I can have as well. After the death of Saul, his son Ishbosheth became king of the other tribes of Israel for a time. And he was really a puppet king. Saul's general Abner was the one who's really in charge and the power behind the throne. When they would fight David and Judah, David's strength and trust in God would win the, win the day. Thus, there was struggle within that kingdom, but Ishbosheth's kingdom. One day, Ishbosheth accused Abner, his general, of taking one of his father's concubines as his own. Abner protested and told how he'd been loyal to his father and told him how he had made him king. And if it had not been for him, David would have conquered him a long time ago. And he let him know that he was switching sides and he was going to start to be loyal to David. Listen to what he said in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. God do so to Abner. Abner's the one talking here. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Abner said, I will help David do what the Lord said. Even Abner, who was on the other side for a time, is recognizing that the Lord had said that the Lord had told David he knew God's word would be accomplished. It does not seem that David nor the Lord needed Abner's help. As a matter of fact, it wasn't long after this that one of David's general killed Abner. And then after that, Ishbosheth lost any courage he had and David's men killed him in his sleep. Lots of details that led to were the place where God's people needed a godly leader. David was God's chosen leader, and he was the king of God's people at a time they needed unifying. Listen to what they said in 2 Samuel chapter 5. We read it a moment ago in verse 2. If you still got that open? Take a look. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, In times past when Saul was king over Israel, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Note the term shepherd, one who leads and guides and cares for the people. Many kings of Israel would not be the same kind of king that David was who shepherded God's people. In fact, it was this way in which David was the most like Christ because we know that uh, Jesus is called the good shepherd. In fact, he's called the great shepherd. David is anointed for the third time, this time as king of all over Israel. But I really want you to notice is that the people knew that the Lord said, this will come to pass. There's only one way that you can know for sure what God has promised and what God says. And that's by finding yourself in the Word. Read the Bible. Expose yourself to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And like the people are doing in 2 Samuel 5 by making David king, the more you know God's Word the more your attitudes and actions will be directed accordingly. 
So you want to be confident in what you're doing to make God's Word imperative every day and your go-to for every decision. While the Bible may not have given explicit instruction on every decision or what to do with every problem, the biblical principles will not fail to give instruction. And it, talk about living with uh, certainty. Let's say that you want guidelines on a particular issue or you want God to answer a particular prayer and you're praying, you're searching God's Word for that particular prayer, but you're not necessarily being obedient in other things in the Bible, maybe even some of those things that are even more clear. You might have a hard time discovering God's will or being certain about those things if you're not following all of God's Word. In other words, follow all of God's Word. And you're more certain about your decisions and your directions. What was David's first act as king of Israel? It was to make Jerusalem, capital of Israel, the center of worship. The Jebusites, a Canaanite people, had occupied Jerusalem for over a thousand years. They had fortified it with high walls for David to fulfill God's command and take this important city would be an example of how he was a leader that would lead people to be obedient to God. Now, Jerusalem is mentioned several times in the Old Testament before this passage. Some of you might remember there was Abraham who paid tribute to Melchizedek, who was the king of the king of Salem. Another name for Jerusalem. Where, where did Abraham almost sacrifice Isaac? The Bible tells us it was Mount Moriah, the temple mount of Jerusalem. In Joshua, the city is called the city of Jebus or Jebusites. Joshua actually fought and defeated uh, the Jebusites and took over Jerusalem only to be found out that uh, later it would be recaptured by the Jebusites. That was on the border, previously not occupied by either northern or the southern tribes. Perfect city to unite the kingdom. Technically, it was in the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem, though, was a stronghold in the middle of Israel being occupied by Canaanite people, surely it was a black eye on the kingdom of Israel. David had to know Jerusalem. David was born in Bethlehem, only five miles from Jerusalem. He had to take sheep probably all around and near the city of Jerusalem. He hid out in the caves near the Dead Sea, which was not far from Jerusalem. We might wonder how many times David might have eyed Jerusalem and thought to himself, one day he's going to conquer that city. The Lord's going to help him to do that very thing. Certainly the Lord had his eye on Jerusalem because he knew, being God, of course he knew that this would be the very place in which the most tragic and the greatest event in history would take place that would be the center of all that takes place in history so that all might be able to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So it became an important thing that's a, about to happen. And When David came to Jerusalem, the, the Jebusites uh, taunted David. They said, you can't take this city, you can't take Jerusalem. Even the, lime, the, li the lame and the blind would be able to keep you out here of Jerusalem because they thought it couldn't be conquered. They probably thought so much it couldn't be conquered that they didn't have anybody even ready to guard or defend the city because nobody had been able to get in for so long. Or maybe they really had the lame and the blind and that was their job to guard the city. Either way, David used their words against them. He said in verse 8, the way to defeat these lame and blind people is to go through the water shaft. All others thought they had to go through the, over the walls, but David and his men went through what's known as the Gihon Spring, the water source at the foot of the mountain of Jerusalem. 
We read it a moment ago where it says, the lame and the blind will have no part in this house. Now I want you to understand what that says because I don't want you to misunderstand the passage. It was David's pet name for the Jebusites. He was calling them that were the lime and the blame, those who were the sinners, those who were against God. It's interesting to me that we're not given the details of the capture of the most important city in Jerusalem. We have chapters in the Bible about the fall of Jericho, much bloodshed about other battles with the Canaanites and the Philistines. But just a couple of verses and suddenly David's living in Jerusalem. Well, maybe there's been enough bloodshed been talked about in these chapters. Or maybe it is all that we need to know is that God did it. And it's just the beginning of what God was going to do in this special city and what He did in this special city and still what He may be doing in Jerusalem today. It's also a reminder that Noah, God is not through with you. He wants you to live a life of certainty, not in yourself, but who you are in Christ. I want to point out just a couple other verses and we'll tie it up here. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 10, we read it a moment ago. And it says this, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Lots of attributes we could talk about, David. We've talked about some of those already today. Lots of things that we could say. But the greatest attribute that we have that is known is in this verse, God was with him. It's your greatest attribute. If you're following the Lord Jesus, it's the greatest thing that could be said about you is that God is with you. And speaking about this idea of certainty and uncertainty, I don't want anyone to leave here today, don't want anybody that's listening today to not know today that they have a home in heaven, that they have Jesus in their heart. I hear many people give testimony sometimes. They say, well, I sure hope I've done enough to be able to get to heaven. Well, you have it. There's no way anybody ever could. But it's not about how good you are. It's about how good Jesus is. And you can know with certainty because of God's promises, because of trust and faith and because of His grace that you can know for sure that you have a home in heaven. So today, if you don't know, settle it today. Ask Christ to come in to be your Savior and Lord. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins as well. Verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12 says this, And David knew that the Lord established him king over Israel, and he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. What did David know? David knew. God has established the kingdom, exalted him for the sake of the people. You and I can know for sure that you're in a place where the Lord has you so that you can exalt the name of God and so that you can serve and love others. So I'm going to ask you to do this. If you want to be certain, if you, if you want to combat the giant of uncertainty, you want to be certain, then stop pursuing God's will only. But always pursue God in a growing relationship with Jesus. It may seem counterintuitive. You want answers. Well, stop necessarily looking for the answers. But just look and pursue Jesus. Do you know why God doesn't answer all your prayers like a magic eight ball? Because if He answered our prayers quickly and it was that easy, you would not spend much time pursuing Him. You not spend much time in His Word, not much time in prayer, but because of these things, the Lord's always asking us to pursue Him even more, come closer to Him, spend more time with Him, and follow His Word. So let's get to it. Let's be the church and let's be the people who are in an all-out pursuit to know Jesus. And the giant of uncertainty has fallen. Let's bow together. Christ.
Jesus, we come to you today recognizing you're in this place and wanting to work into our lives. And we thank you that we can come offering ourselves to you because of what you've done for us. <clears throat> we pray now that any anxiety or worry or doubt that we have in our lives that we might turn over to you and that you might be able to give us certainty about who Christ is. Not about who we are, but who we are in Christ. We pray that even now, Father, we might be turning different parts of our life over to you, that we might be pursuing you even more. We pray, Father, if there's one here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of salvation. Thank you for how you continue to be at work in our lives. We see in ages from the oldest to the youngest here in our church. And we pray, Father, that you may continue to increase our territory to see more and more people walking and growing with you. We lift these prayers up in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.